Happy Friday to you, and I hope all of you are having a great end of your week, that you've got a great weekend planned, and that it includes spending time with your brothers and sisters in Christ at your home congregation. If you do not have a home congregation where you worship and fellowship and pray and study and serve and encourage others and be encouraged by them, then you need to find a place. And if you happen to be looking right now and you're within driving distance of the Elkhart East Building, I would encourage you to come and check us out. Maybe we can be the place you can settle down and call your own spiritual home. Fridays, I also say thank you to all of you who are supporting Into the Word to keep this program on the air here. Uh, If there is anyone that would like to join in that effort, it's easy enough to do. Just write down the contact information you'll hear at the end of the program today. Then you can send your one-time or ongoing gift of any amount to that address, and it will be used for those charges that we have. I also want to uh, invite you uh, to consider being part of the next Divorce Care class that takes place Uh, at the Elkhart East Christian Church Complex. Uh, We've got a parsonage there that uh, is standing empty right now, but it's going to be used uh, for this uh, series that's starting up at the beginning of next month in March. Uh, It's going to be on Tuesday nights, and uh, if you would like to know more, then please reach out to me. Contact me uh, with the contact information you'll hear or check out uh, Into the Word website, or check out the Elkhart East Christian Church uh, website, and you will see all the information you need to be part of a divorce care class. Please open to Hebrews chapter number 8. We are looking at this pretty involved book about how Jesus is more important than anything that you can imagine, especially anything you can imagine as a Jewish person. Uh, Remember, the author seems to be trying to combat the idea of scaling back on connection to Jesus uh, back into just being Jewish because there's persecution going on at this particular time against Christianity uh, there at Rome and in Italy, because this is all happening right around probably 65 and 66 that this letter is written. Uh, So far, he has reminded his readers Jesus is more significant than angels, as powerful as they might be. Jesus is more significant than Moses, as important as he might be. Jesus is more important than Abraham, as significant as he definitely is to the Jewish people. He is more, Jesus is more significant than the Aaronic Levitical priesthood, because Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, which is the forever priesthood. And so with that in mind, we jump back in to the consideration of the high priesthood of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. 
we have such a high priest, that is, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who lives forever to make intercession. He is perfect, he is holy, he is separate from God, all of that. So we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now that actually goes back to the beginning of this book, because uh, the author had said that God has spoken to us in many ways, in diverse forms, through all the prophets of the past. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son Jesus, who is seated, of course, at the right hand of the glory in high. And he's been there ever since he finished his atonement. You remember that he ascended on high and took a seat at the right hand of God the Father. And he's been interceding in that position ever since. So our author is jumping in on that picture of Jesus as the intercessor for all believers. Verse number two, a minister in the holy places. Now, minister here is the sense of somebody serving, somebody going through the service routine. Uh, remember, this is written for Jewish people, so they thought about how the priests every single day went through a service routine that took them throughout the courts of the temple complex. It took them, many of them, into the holy place where the altar of incense was located, where the... Um, lampstand is located and where the table of the bread of the presence is located. So they are ministering, those priests, every day throughout the day in the holy places on the Temple Mount. But the point that this man is making is that Jesus is a minister in the holy places, but it's in the true tent of the Lord set up, not by man. Uh, so the tabernacle is going to be used throughout here rather than the temple because the tabernacle was the first version of the temple. And it was given by God to Moses, uh, the design elements of it, uh, there at Mount Sinai. And so he was told at the time, make sure you follow the pattern exactly. And we have found out since that the pattern was symbolizing things. And we'll talk about some of these symbols as we uh, go farther into this book. Uh, so Jesus, he is a minister of God, a priest of God, going through the the pursuits of priesthood, but he's not doing it on planet Earth. He's doing it in the heavenly realms where God himself exists, and uh, he's going through the real tabernacle, not the copy on planet Earth. Verse number three, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. 
All right, so when the high priests are doing their officiating, they're not just wandering around. They've got a mission, and that mission includes taking things with them, carrying things, typically sacrificial elements like bowls of blood or the pieces of meat, the offering that's going to be burned up. Uh, But the point of the author here is that Jesus is doing important ministry with the most important sacrificial elements of all, himself. Verse number four. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Uh, So we've already talked about this last session. It was in the previous chapter. Jesus could not have served on the Temple Mount as a priest because he was not from the priestly tribe. He was not from the tribe of Levi. And he most certainly could not have been a high priest because he was not from the descent of Aaron, or to be more pragmatic about it, or from the descent of the Maccabean priests of the uh, 2nd century B.C. Uh, So he could not have ever offered sacrifices on the Temple Mount like the Jewish priests were currently doing when this letter was written. Uh, This is one of the reasons why I am convinced uh, that this letter was completed and sent out before um, the midpoint of uh, 66, because uh, the, the things going on in the temple started getting really messed around with uh, after uh, the big blow-up between uh, the Jewish people and the Roman people uh, in uh, the summer, I think it was, of 66. That's when it first started falling apart. All right, so Jesus in 66, let's just call it early 66, could not have served in the tabernacle or the temple. They, meaning the physical priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So as as tangible as the temple was, as tangible as the tabernacle was, neither one of them was the real place of worship and service. The real place of worship and service was in the heavenly realms. So verse number uh, five continues, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, and this is a quote directly from Exodus 25, 40, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So God had a pattern in mind when he gave all of the directions to Moses on how to make an earthly tabernacle, an earthly place of worship. But, as it is, Christos, Christ, or Jesus has obtained a ministry, you know, service 
that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is exacted on better promises. So once again, Jesus is better than every other Jewish thing that we've talked about so far. And that includes the practices of the priests. Jesus is more significant than that. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, that is the Mosaic covenant, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And that's an important thing to pay attention to. If the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, could have accomplished the things that God wanted accomplished, there would not have been the need for a new covenant, the covenant of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, and the quote is coming to us from Jeremiah 31, so it is a reminder that even the prophets of old, where God was talking long before Jesus came on the scene, uh, Jeremiah is doing his preaching in the late five, uh, excuse me, in the uh, early 500s uh, BC, uh, so 6th century BC. Behold, the days are coming, declares he who is, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The reason he mentions two of them is because by that time in their history, uh, the Israeli nation had been split into two uh, for uh, several decades, or several centuries. Uh, but God is saying through Jeremiah, my intention is to establish a new covenant with them all. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, so that's the Mosaic Covenant. That's the covenant of the Old Testament uh, commandments. That is the covenant of the Ten Commandments and all of the other ordinances. Uh, the scripture in Jeremiah says, I'm not going to make another one like that. I'm making a new one, a better one than that. Why? Well, the explanation is right in the text. For they, meaning the Israelis as a whole, did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares he who is. Um, and that's got to do with the judgments that were coming on the nation in the time of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was preaching to the last generation before the destruction of the first temple. And he warned them that this was coming, and you've known it's been coming for a long time, because you've blown off God's instructions for you. He is going to take away all your stuff. And then he's going to take you out of the promised land into a land of exile. But in the midst of all of that bad news, Jeremiah and the other prophets were always being prompted by the Holy Spirit to say, but something bigger is coming down the pike. Something more important is coming in the future. And so here in Jeremiah 31, that's where we go next. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, 
declares he who is. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. So what God wants done is not going to be on tablets of stone anymore. It's not going to be just on bits of parchment or something like that. It's going to go deep down inside of these individuals that name the name. And then, because of that, quote, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we're going to have this intimate relationship, which is what God always wanted anyway. Verse 11 continues, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord! And you've got to think of it in that fashion, that what happens is that there's evangelism, if you will, going on inside of Israel, uh, where a minority, a remnant, as it's often referred to in the Israeli people, kept saying, the rest of you guys need to repent. You need to get back to the Lord. You need to know the Lord. You need to have a personal relationship with him because you don't have it right now. So the prophecy here is that there's coming a time when that evangelism is no longer going to be needed because they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, that's not a prediction of a, um, of a universal salvation of ethnic Israel. It's a prediction of what will happen after the second coming of Jesus when the only people in his kingdom are those that have relationship with him. Verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, so a promise of forgiveness. Now, verse 13, In speaking of a new covenant, which he did in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, written six centuries before Jesus, before the Christian era. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That is, the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant of Christ supersedes the old covenant of Moses. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so, this is where the writer is now going to try to help his Jewish readers understand that the Jewish religion as you know it is not much longer for this world. It is soon going to be gone uh, now, Jesus had already predicted that this would happen, uh, that the temple would be done away with, that there would be no longer any sacrifices being made on the Temple Mount. Uh, this was all going to pass away. It was going to be gone. And so here we are uh, in about 65, 66, so uh, about 32, 33 years after Jesus made that prediction about the destruction of the temple, uh, the Jewish readers that our author is writing to, 
they need to understand time's almost up. In a matter of years, there will be no more temple. There will be no more sacrificial system. And it will become exceptionally obvious at that point. You either embrace the new covenant or you will be without a covenant because you can't go back into the old because the old is superseded by the new. So this is really important to understand. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So now he's taking us all the way back to the time of Moses. For a tent or a tabernacle was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. So when the tabernacle was made, it was a three-sided tent with draping up and over the top of it. Uh, And these three sides to the tent were actually reinforced with, with gold covered lumber plating, uh, gold plated covering on uh, framework. Uh, And uh, it was in the first two thirds of it, uh, 20 cubits deep and uh, excuse me. Yeah. 20 cubits deep, uh, 10 cubits tall, 10 cubits wide. That was called the holy place. And it was the place where the priests would do their daily work. And as the writer correctly says, there were only three things in there. There was the lampstand, the seven-branched lampstand, which represents the day-by-day illumination of God's Spirit. Uh, There are seven days in a week. There were seven lamps. Uh, The lamps were fueled by oil, Uh, the purest oil that the Israelis could collect. And we know that uh, the the Holy Spirit is often represented by oil. And then, of course, light um, gives the illumination we need to do what we need to do. And God is light. In him, there is no darkness. And we also have uh, passages that say things like, uh, your, lamp, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Uh, so the lampstand was all about being able to walk day by day in God's light, the light of his word, the light of his presence. Uh, the table, uh, sometimes referred to as the table of the showbread, which is just an old fancy word for presence, Uh, The bread of the presence uh, was all about um, 12 flat loaves, unleavened loaves. Each one represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was left on the table. These loaves were left on the table day by day for seven days in a row as a representation that the people of God are always living in God's presence. That's the point. 
Now, it's interesting when you dig down into uh, the story of the table of the showbread, it wasn't just bread that was on the table. There were also cups of wine. And so it was kind of like a dinner table, but it was a representative dinner table of the bread and the wine. And we think of that in the sense of communion, uh, the bread representing the body of Jesus, the the cup representing his blood poured out for sacrifice. So the table of the presence was all about being connected to God week by week by week. Uh, at the end of each week, new cups and new bread loaves were brought in. Do you know what they did with the old? The priests that were coming on duty, the priests that were going off duty, would then eat the old bread and drink from the old cup together. It was a, a time of communion. It was a time of fellowship. And so I think that's highly significant. Uh, so we've got the lampstand representing being in God's presence, uh, the presence of his word, the light of his teaching, seven days a week. We've got the bread of the presence reminding we must be in fellowship with him week after week after week and in fellowship with each other. And then the other thing that was there that is not mentioned here uh, was the incense altar, which represents prayer. Uh, we know that in the book of Revelation, he actually comes right and says, the incense are the prayers of the saints, right? So that's the holy place where the priests met with God and did God's work week by week, day by day. Now, behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place. It had the golden altar of incense. Now, that's interesting. Here, the incense altar, which actually sat inside the Holy Place, is intimately connected with the next section, which is the most holy place, because it was right on the termination point between the two. It was right on the border between the two. Uh, and so it, as I already said, represented prayer to God. And then the most significant thing that was in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which were a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And so what our author is doing here is he's trying to help us see God's symbolism in the building of the tabernacle, in giving Moses all of these instructions, because all of these things were to help us understand there is a plan for Jesus coming along and fulfilling the symbolism of all this and bringing us all into the eternal presence of the God and Father of all of us.